together to Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I noticed that both services, just reading the scripture, I could feel my own tension rising with the words and the situation that we're reading. And so we're going to get into this this morning. Uh, today's the fourth Sunday in a series uh, that we've been doing on conflict. And I think it'd be helpful to kind of just briefly overview what we've been through so far as we get into what we're going to be getting into for the rest of this series. The first week, we studied a conflict that most of us have heard many, many times. It's the conflict in the Gospels between Martha and who? Her sister, Mary, right? They were having Jesus and a bunch of his closest friends over to their home. And while Martha did all of the work in her words, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus listening to him. And Martha was naturally upset. She was overwhelmed because she had a task list that was never going to get done. Can any of us relate to being overwhelmed by a task list that we're never going to get done, right? I think it's the reason why sometimes we don't come to church in the morning because we're like, you know what? I got all of these things here. Let me just tell you, though, you're not going to get it done whether you come to church or not. <laughs> so you might as well just come. But we get it, and we get how that affects everything, right? When you're overwhelmed by what you are carrying on your shoulders, it overwhelms us in other places of our lives, too. And so Jesus, Martha comes to, to Jesus and says, aren't you going to tell my sister to help? And instead of swooping in with some grand miracle, he could have made the food, right? 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 We, we know about wine. We know about fish and loaves and all of that. But instead of swooping in with some grand miracle or instead of coming in and sharing this deep parable, he does something much simpler than that. Luke chapter 10, verse 41. This is how he responds. Say the words with me. Martha, Martha. He says her name. Martha. Martha, and it's so good because last week we learned that no conflict occurs in a vacuum, right? Conflict is coming out of the place in which we live. The circumstances around us and within us are what often lead to soil that is fertile for conflict to brew. And so Jesus, in order to calm Martha down, begins not by addressing the problem, but by addressing the circumstances around it, and that is to address the person. He says, Martha. Martha. And I was thinking about this this week, and I thought, you know, I wonder if we could all practice this throughout the week. If you want to address the amount of conflict that's happening in your life, in your world, and the way in which you address it, I wonder if we can pray the prayer of Martha. That next time you're overwhelmed, that you find just a minute, that you go someplace else, go into your prayer closet, sit in your car, close your eyes, do whatever. And, and it's a two-step prayer, very simple. The first step, complain to Jesus. <laughs> 
Complain to Jesus. Just between you and him, if there's people in your life that are not doing their job, whatever it might be, go to God, say all those things, and when you're done, stop and listen. And I want you to just imagine, even just do it right now, close your eyes, and just imagine Jesus saying your name, Martha. Martha, after you've spewed all of these things at him, imagine him responding to you by saying your name. Not just once, but twice. Martha, Martha. Tom, Tom, whatever your name is, just imagine that that's the way in which he responds to you. I think it would be helpful. So that's, that's what we learned the first week. You can open your eyes now. Unless you need a nap, then you can keep them closed, whatever you need to do. The next two weeks, we, we studied revenge, and we talked about taking the higher road. We talked about how sometimes, like David running away from Saul in 1 Samuel, we need to protect ourselves from the people in our lives that are posing a danger to us. And yet we said that even when you're wronged, there's a line for followers of Christ that we do not cross, and that is we do not bring revenge. To avenge is God's word. Proverbs 20, says, do not say I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. In the court of all things, God is not just the judge, but he's also the jury and he's also the bailiff. You and I are never called to take matters into our own hands for the purpose of teaching them a lesson. Christians throughout history at our best have been known as people of peace for this reason. And it doesn't mean that people of peace are to lay flat like a doormat, but there's a difference between keeping oneself safe or protecting other people. That's called justice. Those are good things. There's a difference, though, between those things and thinking that we can somehow inflict pain on someone else that is going to make the deepest wrongs in this world right. If you don't believe me, if you've ever been the victim of something or someone that's as close to you has ever been a victim, just think about it. There is no amount of pain and suffering that you can inflict, no consequence that you could place on the offending party that is going to undo the pain and hurt that has been done. Only God can do that. And God's promise is that he will. And it is within his purview. It is within his power, but it is not within ours, which is why Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with Everyone, everyone, all people, everywhere. This verse, really, if you missed the first three weeks, you, I just saved you like an hour and a half of listening to sermons, right? Right there. It's all in Romans 12. This is what we are called to do. We've learned how to disarm conflict. We've learned how to be humble in the midst of conflict. And then last week in Genesis 13, we learned from Abraham and Lot that we are to take the high road away from conflict. And all of that is possible. And it's not possible because we've got these happy hops to to peacemaking that we find in Scripture. I didn't give you some clever phrase that helps us to live this out in every way in which we live. But it is something that is uniquely available to us because we know Jesus. Because we know Jesus, because he knows us, because we know who we are in him, because we've inherited as co-heirs with the Prince of Peace to be a follower of Jesus. It is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. This is what it looks like. It looks like this, that we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile 
clay jars. Uh, just pause before I even go on to the rest of it. How many of you feel some days like a fragile clay jar? Show of hands. It's difficult, right? You have to carry it carefully. It's got cracks because it's been dropped, right? We, we are fragile clay jars, but we contain this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. We're all fragile and broken vessels. But in our relationship with Jesus, we carry a hope inside of us that heals the world. It's the greatest treasure that there is. We have inherited more than we could ever amass, than we could ever win, than we could ever earn. And I was reminded of this this week. Um, my kids... Um, my kids were annoyed with me this week. I, I, I wrote that in my sermon. I thought I could have an illustration for that every week, probably. Um, but this week, the reason that they were annoyed with me is I've been making them listen to music from when I was growing up. And so this week, it was a playlist from the 90s, which I know just dated me. Some of you are like, you're so young. And there's a couple of you that are like, you're a little old, like my kids, right? And so I was listening to some, some music on the way home from somewhere this week, and a song came on that I hadn't heard in years, and I used to love the song. It was the song, If I Had a Million Dollars, by the band Bare Naked Ladies. Anybody remember that song? Show of hands? Okay, good, good. Some of you. I, I asked at the 8 o'clock service, some remembered it, kind of, right? So some of you are going to follow this. So I had to pause it, first of all, because my kids were wondering why a band of men named themselves that. <laughs> I didn't have an answer for that question. But, but if you don't know the song, it, it, was, it was one of their earliest hits. I think it came out originally in like 1992. And it's this silly duet about what you would do if you had a million dollars. If it was sung today, you would fill your gas tank up all the way to the top, right? But 20, 30 years ago, that was a lot of money, right? And, and, and I think it was such a hit because, because we've all done this. We've all daydreamed. What would I do if I had more money than I ever would need to worry about? And the chorus culminates, I'll see if any of you remember this, it culminates with the words, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy your, does anybody remember? Anybody? Love. I'd buy your love. That's how it culminates. It's all these things, and then it culminates with these words, I'd buy your love. It's this climax of irony because, of course, everybody knows that love is the one thing that money can't buy. You know why we know that? The Beatles taught us that a couple of decades before that. This song, is, it was a reminder to me as I was thinking about our text today that we know instinctively, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you're a religious person or not, there's this hole inside of us that, that can't be filled by material possessions. It can't be filled by success. It can't be filled by our earning. It can't be filled by anything else. It's this reminder that what we need is love. And as followers of Christ, we are taught what the gospel is, is that in Christ, we have perfect love. We are loved by the creator of the heavens and the earth. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. Even if we're still walking around carrying this perfect love in precious and broken clay jars. Now the one who lives inside of us is the one that defines us. And it's out of that position as children of God that are forgiven and redeemed and loved that we should approach every conflict that we face. And so this summarizes everything that we've talked about so far. And today we're going to learn that not only is conflict inevitable for everyone, there's no way to avoid it or get rid of it and get out of it, not for followers of Christ or not, 
but it's also the reality that there are going to be times that the best way to follow Paul in Romans 12 and bring peace to the world is to actually engage in the conflict head on. And so that's what we're going to see how to do in our reading today in Galatians chapter 2. Here in Galatians, we've, we've got this really great example of a situation we've all been in. It's an uncomfortable tension between two people. Have you ever seen two people fighting it out in front of other people in a public place or maybe at a family gathering and you felt maybe you've been in the middle of that and you feel this really weird tension. It's super uncomfortable. You're like, oh, it just it, that's what's going on in our reading today. Look at verse 11. Paul says this. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, we're jumping into the middle of something, so I think some context is helpful here. Galatians is a letter, and it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a church that is confused over some very simple questions that we get confused on all the time. Questions like, what do I have to do to be saved by God? What do I have to do to really be loved? What do I have to do to be invited into his family, into the eternal promises? Uh, this year, this all the questions that they're getting confused over. And the context is that they are the first generation church. And the church has come out of the Jewish tradition of faith. And this faith at this point in history has evolved into a deep and wide tradition of rules and regulations and rituals. And all of those things have communicated a very different message of its own that is different from the original message that they had been given. And it is certainly different from the message that Jesus came to bring, that you don't have to do anything to receive the love of God. And I was thinking about that this week as well. This, I, I, visit, I was in a number of different people's homes this week, visiting even some of you. I was in your home. And, and I want to say I'm not talking about any of you, okay? Just so you know, um, none of you here. Um, but I've learned over the years, when I go into somebody's house, I always ask if I should take off my shoes. Does any, anybody else do that? My mom, she always, she's here somewhere, um, she always taught us to take our shoes off. And so even, even if, I, like, if I wear my shoes because everybody else is wearing them, I don't feel quite right. Is anybody else like that too? Show of hands. Okay, good. I see Lacey, hands up. Um, so, so I always ask, I'm like, should I take off my shoes? And what I've learned over the years is that no matter what, People always tell you, no, you don't have to take off your shoes. Even the people that I'm pretty positive are vacuuming themselves into bed every night. They're the ones, too. They're like, no, you don't have to take off your shoes. So here's what I've started to do. I still ask the question, should I take off my shoes? But instead of just taking the person's word for it, I look down at their feet. <laughs> And if they're not wearing shoes, then no matter what the answer to the question is, I'm probably not going to wear my shoes either because I know that that's probably what they want. See, behavior communicates, doesn't it? Sometimes our behavior communicates louder than our words, and that's what's happening here 
in Galatians. Paul is about to give us a summary of a heated argument that takes place between him and Peter the Apostle because there is an inconsistency between what he says he believes and what he is actually living his life as if he believes. Peter is referred to as Cephas here. That's his Aramaic name. It means stone. Peter is rock. This is the name that Jesus has given him because this is what he has called him into to be the rock of the church. And that's what he would become. He even dies on the cross just like Jesus did. History tells us that the most likely way he died was upside down on the cross. And the reason was because he said he did not feel worthy to live the same way or to die the same way as his Lord did. And so I share this with you to show you how committed he was to his faith. We're not looking at an argument between a bad guy and a good guy. These are two good guys. You've got Paul, him too. Before Jesus, he was upright. He was in perfect standing with the Jewish leadership. If there was someone who vacuumed themselves into bed, spiritually speaking, it was the apostle Paul, and he gave up all of it when he met Jesus. He gave up the history. He gave up his status. He even gave up his life as well to tell the world about the hope that God loves them too. And I share this to say that all of them, both of them, they're good men. They're doing good things for the Lord. And yet verse 11 says that Paul opposed Cephas, Peter, to his face. And so you say, okay, well, first of all, that must mean that good people fight sometimes too, (laughs) right? Sometimes when we, this isn't even the point that that I'm drawing out of this, but it does tell us that sometimes conflict is, is, is okay and we don't have to always make it personal, right? Like, like sometimes we have a good old-fashioned fight with somebody and we still love them and it has no bearing on their value and their worth, right? It's just a fight. And that's what's going on here. It's a fight. So what are they fighting over? Verse 12, Paul says, Before certain men came from James, he, Cephas, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, we can all relate to this. How many of us have somebody in our lives that when we're in their presence, we feel on edge? We feel self-conscious. We suddenly are, are, are judging our actions and everything that we do. We hold ourselves so well until we get into the presence of that person. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's somebody that you grew up with. Maybe you don't even see them very often, but when you run into them at a high school reunion, suddenly it's just like you're back on that football team or it's just like you're back in the locker room or you're just like back at that party. You suddenly become kind of transported temporarily into that place and that time. That's what happened here for Peter. James, the brother of Jesus, was the one in charge of the church in Jerusalem. So he said the men of James came. These are Jewish Christians that have come uh, from Jerusalem. And they lean strongly toward a very fundamentalist way of seeing their faith because they were from Jerusalem. It was this culture that, that stood in, in stark contrast to the reason that Christianity grew as much as it did in those early years. And the reason it grew was because it was open to everyone. Jesus came and he literally tore down all of the barriers. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that, say it with me, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever. Do you know what that word means in Greek? Whoever. (laughs) That's what it means. Anyone. 
You know what it means? If you looked at it in Hebrew, it would mean whoever. In Aramaic, it would mean whoever. It means whoever. Everyone. Anyone who believes. That's the only requirement now. And it has nothing to do with what you've done or what group of people that you belong to. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Believe. That's it. Believe. Anybody can believe. And in the early church, they did. Everyone, so many different people believed. And it it created this radical unity between people that otherwise wouldn't have anything in common. But because they were welcomed into the family of God by Jesus, they did. Their bond was stronger than anything that would divide them. And so you had rich and poor, you had Jews, and you had Gentiles. I feel like I can start using cheesy football references because preseason's coming, right? You had Bear fans and Packer fans, and Vikings fans. You had all of them eating the same cheese dip from the same bowl, watching football together. You had Republicans and Democrats. I know, it gets really quiet, right? You had those who take off their shoes, and you have those who leave their shoes on. And Peter was eating with all of them. He was eating with all of them until these certain men of James came in, these whole high-profile Jews who would have never been seen with the kind of people that Peter was associating with. And so they come on the scene, and Peter goes, hey, wait a minute, no, no, I don't really know them. I wasn't really out with them. I wasn't, have we heard this story with Peter before, right? Sometimes these demons take a long time to go away. And so verse 13, it says this, not only did Peter begin to step away, but verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. What's going on here is Peter, who's an apostle of Jesus, a minister of the gospel, the rock of the church, was telling the world one thing, and yet the way he was living his life was inconsistent with that truth. Verse 14, Paul says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, You are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul calls Peter out, and he does it in front of other people. He says, One minute you're eating with with Gentiles, and you're drinking with Gentiles, and the next minute you're saying they got to follow all the rules of the Jewish people if they want to be welcomed into the kingdom of God by Jesus. That doesn't make sense. Peter, theological term, was being two-faced. And before we judge Peter, we already admitted that we've done the same thing too, haven't we? We have people who we get in the context of, and we're different people, right? We act different ways. How many times have you acted a different way around a different coworker? or around your in-laws, or around church people when you walk in and you smile, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, even though you're not, but you say you are, because that's the way you're supposed to act, because you're in church, that's what we say, right? How many times do we do that? Now, now, when you act differently around different kinds of people, does that mean that you are different persons in those contexts? No. You're the same person everywhere you go. And you know how I know that? Because if somebody's with you and they really know you, they can tell when you're not acting the way you really are, right? They can tell it in your laugh. When somebody says something funny and you don't really think it's funny and you're like, 
They know that that's not the way that you really laugh, right? They, they know you intimately that way. Paul knows Peter, and he knows him well enough to know that he is not acting out of what he believes. He calls him out, and he says, you're not being yourself. And on top of it, you're dragging other people down in your hypocrisy. You're the rock, You represent the love of Jesus and these people around you are getting the impression that they got to earn their way into the love of God. And yet just yesterday, Peter, you were just like them. You were doing all of these things. You were drinking beer and you were eating cheese dip with Packer fans and now you're saying nobody in Green Bay is ever going to be saved. I should flip that one because I'm in Wisconsin, right? (laughs) Chicago, put it however you want it to go. But all jokes aside, I use football as an example because Peter is letting things that in the kingdom of God are comparatively insignificant become so significant that they're getting in the way of people receiving the love and the welcome of God. We do the same thing in our world today. You know what it's called? It's called fundamentalism. It's called fundamentalism, and it's everywhere. It is everywhere. We might not be caught up in Jewish customs and traditions, but by golly, it is in Christianity. (laughs) You see it everywhere. You see it in your politics. We see it in the groups that we divide ourselves into. We say that only the people that live this way Only the people that worship that way, only the people that vote this way, they're the only ones that are true believers. And yet the Apostle Paul said this in another place in Romans 8. He said, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God's love is strong enough to overcome the power of demons, then God's love is strong enough to save a Lutheran and a Catholic. Don't you agree? (laughs) Don't you think that's probably not a stretch? That if God's love is strong enough to save us from death, that he can save Democrats and Republicans? I think he can do both, that he can save anyone from anywhere. And the reason why is because it's not about us. It's about him. It's about what he has done. It's all about Jesus. This eternity, this salvation, this forgiveness, it's this message that you are already accepted and loved beyond your wildest dreams because you're loved by God. God has accepted you for himself. He has accomplished everything to make you his child. All you need to do is believe. And Peter forgot that for a moment. Maybe not up in his head, but he forgot it in his actions. And this was true. And because of his position of influence, those around him were being led astray as well. We all, you know, you're here, right? You're at least open to professing Christianity if you're walking into the doors of the church. I assume that you're open to that, but how often do our actions not line up with that profession of being a co-heir with the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords? We've all been here. Peter was there too. This is a situation where conflict is inevitable. You can't stand idly by 
Eternity is in the crosshairs. You can't blow it off. You can't say that this isn't worth it. This is a priority. And in situations like that, what we learn is that dealing with conflict head on might actually be the best thing you can do because it's going to bless the person you're in conflict with and it's going to bless the people around them. And so let's read how Paul corrects Peter. Verse 15, he says, We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles, But we also know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Oh, by the way, Jewish people are sinful too, is essentially what he says here, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. We're justified in him. Paul says, Peter, this isn't who you are. You are saved by faith and faith alone, by the grace of God. It is not by where you've come from. It is not by what other people from Jerusalem think of you. Jesus has already done it. You are already his, his chosen, his rock. Believe and come back to it. And don't just do it for yourself, but do it for all of the people that are watching. And I read that and I thought, man, we all need a Paul in our life, don't we? We all need someone in our life that knows us well enough to know who we really are and has an open door into our lives to call us out in the love of Jesus when we're not living in accordance with what we truly believe. And I think, man, that is so lacking in our world today, isn't it? Just just think about it right now. You don't have to raise your hand. Do you have, how many of us have somebody who truly knows us and who is close enough to us that we would allow them to say the things to us that Paul said to Peter, that they know who we are, and we would welcome them to call us out in love and in firmness when we're not in alignment with what it is that we believe. Notice that at the heart of this, the reason that Peter is living out the way that he's living out, uh, his, his actions inconsistent with what he believes, is really all fear, <laughs> He's afraid of what other people are going to think of him. And it's so often out of fear that we live inconsistently with what we believe as well. We want to be accepted. And the world tells us over and over again, and I think this is going to get worse, not better, that if you don't pick the right side, it's all or nothing. You're going to lose it all. And Jesus came to say that is not true because I came 2,000 years to give it all to you. And that is so much more important than any way in which we divide ourselves. You don't need to be afraid anymore. And when it happens that we are, and when it happens that we fall away from it, we need someone that's willing to wade into the conflict and bring us back to the love of God that lives inside of us. And for Peter, in this moment, that person is Paul. And Paul does it not because he's being self-righteous or he's any better than Peter. He does it out of love. Paul loves the people around Peter enough that he doesn't want them to get drawn away from the love of God in themselves. But he also loves Peter enough to know that sometimes we're not brave. You know, my wife and I, we didn't grow up um, going to the same school. And I'll tell you, when I've been with groups of friends that I grew up with, and if I'm feeling intimidated, if I'm feeling fearful, you know what makes it easier? bringing my wife along with me. Do you know why? Because she knows me. And sometimes I can borrow from her braveness so that I walk into those moments and make sure that I stay the person that I know I am, that she knows I am. Peter does that by allowing Paul to be that person 
for him. And it comes out of the gospel. It comes out of this understanding for both Peter and Paul that all of us are equally sinful and equally invited into God's love only because of Jesus. That's the gospel. And that is the place that we need to begin, whether we're the ones correcting someone like Paul or whether we're the ones being corrected like Peter. And when we begin there, loving correction from a gospel-centered person who loves you can be one of the greatest gifts that you can give or receive. And so would you join me right now as we pray for that principle to be true as we wade into the world that we live. Lord Jesus, these truths apply to all of us. We've all been Peter. We have all lived with some level of hypocrisy between our actions and what we really know and believe to be true. We all have also been like Paul, where we have watched someone that we know and we care about living a double life. And, and too often, this double life has a negative impact on the people around them. And so, Lord, as, as much as I would love to get up in front of the folks who have gathered here near and far and pray that as followers of Jesus that we would have less conflict in our lives and in the lives around us, I actually don't believe that we have the power to change that. I know that on this side of eternity, conflict is inevitable, and I fear that in the moments in history that we live, I'm, it might actually get worse before it gets better. That might be true. But what that means now, maybe more than ever, is that the world needs more clay jars. More clay jars that are fragile, cracked, and even broken, and yet made worthy by you to carry the light of hope inside of us that shines through our imperfections for all to see. And so help us to shine that light in all we do and especially in the conflicts we face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.